Father, we come to you in prayer this morning asking that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we live in urgent times. We see what's going on around us in the world today and we're desperate for a deeper, more close, more intimate walk with you. Lord, in the silence of our own hearts, just now, we want to open our hearts to hear your voice. We want to invite you to speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Please touch our hearts, Father. Please send your Holy Spirit to move with power in this place. Lord, bring us revival. Bring us life. Bring us love for Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. When my wife and I lived at Andrews University, we were expecting that somebody was coming to visit, somebody who hadn't been to our house in quite some time. Now, I don't know about you, but when you find out that somebody's coming over, especially somebody who's really important to you, what do you usually do? Clean house. Yeah, and it, it may not even be that your house is particularly messy, or it may be particularly messy. I don't remember which the case was that day, but I know at least that the corners of the house needed some dusting, that there was some vacuuming that needed to take place, that we needed to wash the dishes, and we were so excited. We were enjoying the process because we knew that we were cleaning our house for a very specific reason. Now, chores can get pretty dreary sometimes. They can be pretty discouraging. You do it every week, and it can, it's not always an exciting thing to vacuum the house. But when you know somebody's coming from out of town and you're excited that they're going to be there soon, you go about it with a certain excitement. Have you experienced that before? So there we are. We're vacuuming. We're dusting. We're cleaning the bathroom. We're making the beds. We're making sure that everything's prim and proper, that everything is fixed nicely for our coming guests. Well, not much longer than had we finished the cleaning of the house, we had it all ready, it all looked perfect, when we got a phone call. And on that phone call, it was, well, you know, I may not be able to come today. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to come. And our hearts began to sink. We were disappointed. We thought, here we were, we were cleaning the house, we were so excited about it, we thought this was a great opportunity, and they're not even coming or they're at least going to be really late. What, are, what did we go through all this for? What's the point of it? Why did we go to so much work to clean house when they weren't even going to show up? It can be disappointing when you've gone through something with expectation. But you know what? As we sat there in our living room and we're looking around the house, I said, well, this is really nice. Look at the shelves are all dusted this, the floor is all clean. Wow, the di- there's no dishes to worry about. Everything, wow, this is really refreshing to have our house this clean. In fact, we should do this every week. This is wonderful. We should have our house this clean all the time. And we were thankful that we had cleaned house even though the expected guests didn't arrive on time. Go with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, where we've been looking at the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says something very interesting to the Philadelphian church. Now you remember, 
Last week, we talked about how this time period extends all the way up to the early 1800s. It encompasses the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. Those time periods where John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and other powerful ministers were doing so much for God, where William Carey took the gospel to India and missionaries began to be sent out. All these incredible things happened in this time period as they realized that they were the church of brotherly love, that they needed to be loving and sharing that love with the world. Well, in Revelation chapter 3, we want to look at a few more details that we haven't talked a lot about. We talked a little bit about the open door last week. It starts off in verse 7 and says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, the one who is the authentic Savior, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. It's very interesting that in each and every church, Jesus says this to the church, I know your works. I know what you've been up to. I know all about your life. I know all the details of your life. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have denied, have not denied my name. Now for Jesus to come and say, I've set an open door before you, and no one else can shut it, is a wonderful thing for them to hear. Because they would have remembered that back in Luke chapter 13, you can go there with me, when the disciples came to Jesus with a very significant question, he talked specifically about an open door. Luke chapter 13 and verse 22, it says, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there only a few who are going to be saved? Have you ever wondered that? Have you wanted to ask Jesus, like, how many of us sitting in this church today, how many of us can know that we're saved? The disciples wanted to know this, and so they asked Jesus, Jesus, is it just a few who are going to be saved? And he said to them this, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Wow. That would have been challenging to the disciples. Here it says, Many are going to want to enter. Many will have that desire, but they will not be able to enter. So what does he say? Strive to enter through the narrow gate, that tight gate, that narrow way. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from east and the west, from north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus describes this moment, this moment when that door of salvation comes closed. Thankfully here to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I have set before you an open door. Hang on, strive. That door is still open for you to enter in the way of salvation. 
But Jesus had also said that there would come a day when that day, when that door would close. And Jesus here to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 says, I'm the one who opens and no one can shut it. I'm the one who shuts and no one can open it again. Going back to Revelation chapter 3, he continues on in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those who have the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. We talked about how Psalm 89.6 says that from all na- nations, people will be gathered together to worship before the throne of God. And we were just reading there in Luke 13, what did he say? They'll come from east, they'll come from north, they'll come from south, they'll come from west, all directions, all around the planet. There will be people who have entered through that narrow gate, who've been striving to enter, who have been saying, I want a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't close the door on them because he knows them for himself. Because you have kept my command, verse 9, 10 continues, to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This gives us just a little indication that this isn't the time period of Christian history in which the time of trouble will come. This isn't the very end of Christian history. This comes up right until that point, but it doesn't reach to the very end of Christian history. Then Jesus says something very significant. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Have you noticed how often through the New Testament that Jesus says this to people? He says, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And again and again, the apostles say, Jesus is coming quickly. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, behold, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober and watchful in prayer. Hang on to that key of prayer. But he says, the end of all things is at hand. Peter believed that Jesus was coming soon. And God allowed Peter to continue having that belief. And here you have Jesus giving a vision to John on the Isle of Patmos. And he he says here that I'm coming quickly. And earlier we read about how Jesus said he was coming quickly. And in Revelation chapter 22 again he's saying, I am coming quickly. Now here's John seeing this vision. And we know that John lived in the first century A.D. And here we are, how many thousand years later, and Jesus has not yet come. Why did Jesus want to give them such expectancy? Why did Jesus want them to to think that he was coming right away? Now, mind you, Jesus was coming quickly for them. When you think in the scheme of eternity, Jesus' coming was very quick for them. But Jesus didn't come in their lifetime. Why did Jesus want them to have this urgency? It's very interesting that as we look at Christian history, that this urgency began to awaken in the Philadelphian church specifically. During that great awakening, as thousands and even maybe millions came to hear about Jesus, to have a saving knowledge of Jesus, as George Whitfield was preaching, John Wesley, as the Methodism movement spread like wildfire, as the United States began to hear the gospel, something interesting began to happen. One thing that began to happen was some great signs took place. You had the dark day that took place. You had the falling of the stars that took place. In 1755, you had one of the most significant 
events in the history books, the Lisbon earthquake took place. In that earthquake, so many people lost their lives. This was right at the time where people were beginning to look back to God. So as the Great Awakening happens, and people are are getting back to the Bible, and they see that these signs have taken place within the last century, these huge events on a cataclysmic scale, as they realize these things have taken place, they began to search the Scriptures in a whole new way. In the 1800s, which is right at the end of this Philadelphian church period, a man by the name of William Miller began to study the Bible for himself. Now, William Miller was a man who didn't actually have a firm faith in God. He had been a deist who believed that God had taken the planet and created it and then left it alone, and he didn't have any personal interaction with the planet anymore. He didn't really believe that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. In fact, he was somebody who would mock his family's sermon. Some of his families were clergy, and he was somebody who thought, this whole religion thing is ridiculous. But he went through some experiences in the war, I believe it was the War of 1812, and he went through some experiences in battle that began to make him question, that began to open his eyes to think a little bit more about the reality of God interacting with us in a real way. So as William Miller began to consider the possibilities that there was a real God and that maybe the Bible was true, he had a problem. Because the Bible was full of contradictions, right? There were just so many things in there that could be proven that they weren't true. So how could any rational being be a believer in this book? So he decided that what he was going to do was to sit down with the Bible and starting in Genesis to just read the Bible through. I know some of you are doing that right now. You're reading through the Bible, experiencing the beauty, the depth, the riches that are contained throughout the Bible. Well, as William Miller began to study, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to pass one verse until I understand that verse clearly. And he would take Cruden's concordance, and he would look in that concordance up the words in a difficult text, and then he would research the other verses that had that same word in it until he finally felt that he grasped that verse. And he was determined that he wanted to rectify any misconceptions, any, if there was any disagreement anywhere in the Bible, then he wasn't going to believe this book. But as he went through, he found again and again what I hope you found as you've studied the Bible, that there's a beautiful, unified whole in Scripture. Even though it was written by various authors over thousands of years, they all agree together in a beautiful way that reveals that this is a book that's higher than human hand could ever write. A book that we can rely upon, that we can count on as our guide for our lives. William Miller, as he studied, came to the prophecies found in the book of Daniel. As he read through the book of Daniel, he was struck particularly by those prophecies of Daniel chapter 7. And he was struck by a realization that these things had predicted history without fail. If you haven't studied these prophecies before, you know Daniel chapter 2 revealed that from Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon, next you'd have the kingdom of Medo-Persia, next you'd have the kingdom of Greece, and then Rome, and then the divided empires. And as he looked at the world around him, he realized that these things had been accurately portrayed without fail through history. And the very next thing in Daniel 2 is that there would come a rock that would smash that statue. 
He began to get excited, realizing the times that he was living in, seeing the events that had taken place, like the earthquake, the Lisbon earthquake. As he kept studying in Daniel chapter 7, he again found the repetition where the beasts represent those same metals and you again find these same nations coming up. But in Daniel chapter 7, you have this horn that pops up, this Antichrist horn. We're not going to get into detail about that today. But in Daniel chapter 8, he found this. I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 8. When he read this, His attention was especially drawn to what God was trying to warn us. To what God was trying to teach us in Bible prophecy. Because he knew that all these other prophecies had come true without fail. He knew that there must be something crucial about understanding this prophecy. Daniel 8 and verse 14. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. As he read this, he became extremely excited because he believed that the sanctuary was planet earth. And as he thought about this, he said, this is telling me that when 2,300 days has elapsed, Jesus is coming back. And this began to fill him with excitement, thinking, wow, I wonder if I could pinpoint this time. And as he began to study, he realized through studying Daniel chapter 7, through studying Daniel chapter 9, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail, but he realized that Ezra chapter 7 reveals that the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was from 457 B.C. And that if you take that, 2,300 days, and you take out for they didn't have a zero year, you end up with 1844. Now, mind you, he's studying this in the year 1818. Now, just imagine, it's 2016, so imagine that we studied a Bible prophecy right now, and I could tell you for certain that in in 2044, Jesus is coming back without a shadow of a doubt. Would that impact your life? If you believe that the Bible clearly revealed that, would that impact how you lived, what you did? Well, William Miller actually kept it to himself, and he just kept studying it on his own until about the year 1823, when God began to give him very clear signs. In fact, he said, okay, God, you're telling me to tell this to the world. Well, send somebody else to come and ask me to preach, because I'm not going to try to go share this. And no sooner had he prayed that, he was out in the grove praying, when his nephew came riding up on a horse, he'd been riding for hours long before he started praying, he comes riding up to the house and he says, we need a preacher because my dad's sick and we need for you to come and preach this week. So he went and he began to share. And at first he shared in small churches and at first it wasn't a large movement that took place, but it began to grow people's excitement began to grow as they began to realize that indeed the time prophecies of Daniel chapter 8, of Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 9 are very clear and they lead us to the year 1844. Now I don't have time to go into depth into the prophecies so that we can see that for ourselves. If you haven't studied it before, I just wanted to put a link up on the screen for you. 1844madesimple.org 
Clifford Goldstein has put together, he's done a talk, he's put some slides together, he's put some articles on there. Really simple explanation of this prophecy that reveals very clearly that, in fact, this Bible prophecy, which William Miller was uh, advocating, did reveal that 1844 was the year for the cleansing of the sanctuary. It's very interesting as you study history. Now, with William Miller, this movement especially began to grow about the year 1840 when uh, a guy by the name of Himes said, hey, we've got to market what you're doing. We've got to get you the the opportunity to share this on a broader scale. So we're going to start making publications. We're going to start multiplying your sermons. We're going to send them everywhere. And the movement began to grow rapidly about the year 1840. Now imagine you're sitting in a pew and it's now the year 1840. And you have somebody preaching there saying, hey, Jesus is coming four years from now. What would that do for you? How would you react knowing that Jesus is coming that soon? And they began to find things out that actually people around the globe were beginning to come to this realization independently. It's very interesting that there were people from all over the place who were preaching the same thing. You had a guy named Wolf who went as a missionary. He got this same impression and he began to go around preaching and he went to all of these countries in the Middle East, dangerous countries, and people began to tell him, hey, you need to be armed as a soldier while you go out and preach. And he said, no, I am armed. They looked at him. They didn't know what he was talking about, but he later said, I was talking about prayer and the Word of God. Sometimes when he felt in danger and he's walking through a dangerous territory and he looked around and he thought he was going to be in trouble, he would just walk around with his Bible open. He said, there's power in the Word of God. And as he'd walk around, he just trusted that the Bible would protect him. There was a guy named Wolf. There was a lot of other missionaries around in different parts of the globe, but they estimate A guy by the name of of Nichols estimates that there were about 60 different people who were going around on four different continents sharing this almost the exact same prophecy that Jesus was coming right around the year 1844. God was raising up a movement of people. A movement of people who were saying, Jesus is coming soon. Should we have been surprised by that? Because Jesus had told the Philadelphian church, I'm coming quickly. Jesus uh, told us through uh, Peter that, that the end of all things is at hand. Again and again in the Bible, you find this urgency, this expectancy that Jesus is coming quickly. But why would Jesus allow this type of movement to take place? Because clearly we're sitting here today and we're thinking, okay, 1844, that was well over 150 years ago, and we're still here. Why would they have this movement, this expectation that Jesus is coming? If the Bible's right, how could, this, how could they have been led by God to this conclusion? I want you to think about something. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus chooses the disciples. As he chooses the disciples, Not the disciples, I should say. He actually chooses the apostles. The disciples were the bigger group who followed him more constantly. But he chooses 12 apostles. Now the word apostle means sent. So the next thing Jesus does is he sends out the apostles. Now watch what Jesus does when he sends out the apostles. This is so fascinating to think of Jesus, the master teacher, as he instructs 
the apostles to go out and preach. This is what he tells them to go and do. Verse 6, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Other places, he, he himself went out saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as they went out to preach this, what were the multitudes of people thinking? They were thinking about Daniel chapter 9, which talks about the 70 weeks. They were thinking about this prophecy being fulfilled and that the Messiah was on hand and that the Messiah was going to free them from the Romans. That's what their expectancy about this time prophecy was. The disciples, we know that this is what they expected because all the way up until right before going to the cross, Peter's ready to rebuke Jesus and saying, hey, you're not going to the cross. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You have to save us from the Romans. So Jesus sends out Peter. Jesus sends out Andrew, his brother. He sends out all of these disciples telling them to go and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everybody, when they hear this message, is going to think, The Romans are going to be defeated. The Christ is here and he's going to work these amazing miracles and he's going to finally set up the kingdom of Israel. You see, Jesus knows something. That sometimes it takes an accurate prophecy, although others may be completely confused about it, sometimes it takes an accurate and urgent prophecy though there may be misunderstanding about it, for us to wake up. For us to realize the urgency of the times that we're living in. As they went out and they preached, the disciples began to baptize many people. In fact, the Pharisees tried to stir up jealousy with John the Baptist's disciples saying, hey, why is Jesus and his disciples baptizing more than you? This message had effect. People experienced repentance because they realized the urgency of the times they were living in. They thought that the time was coming and they didn't understand exactly what it was all about. But when Jesus went to the cross, suddenly their whole picture was transformed and they realized that what it was really about was about Jesus coming to save them from their sins. That's why Peter had to come and preach. And in Acts chapter 3, our scripture reading, he says, repent and be converted. He goes through in Acts chapter 3 telling them that, do you realize you crucified the Messiah? When that realization hit them by the end of that chapter, it tells us there were 5,000 believers that people began to finally recognize the need to follow Jesus. It had an impact, that message, and it also had an impact back in the 1840s when William Miller, when the Millerite movement was taking place and they're sharing, hey, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming in just four years from now, just two years from now, till finally they got, actually it was first 1843 they thought was going to be the time, Jesus is coming this year. Can you imagine if, if I stood up here and told you Jesus is coming by the end of 2016? Would you have different priorities over the next few days, over the next few weeks, over the next few months? I would. If I knew that Jesus was coming, wouldn't I be focused in possibly different ways than I am today? Yet, God allowed this urgency to take place. Now, I wanted to share with you some personal insights that people had from that movement. People, especially in 1844, 
when they're proclaiming that, hey, Jesus is coming this fall. Jesus will be here. He's coming in the clouds of heaven. And we believe he may even come on October 22. Here they are preaching this. They say that he's coming by October 22. They didn't try to specify necessarily always the exact day because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. But they said it will be by October 22. And then finally they were saying, no, it is October 22. That antitypical day of atonement will take place. But Hiram Edson said this, my Advent experience has been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. This is written after the disappointment, after 1844, when Jesus hadn't actually come like he expected. Right before this, he says, we wept and we wept until the day dawned, but that was the most rich experience of my entire Christian walk. Ellen White said this in Life Sketches, this was the happiest year of my life. She's writing years later about the year 1844. She said, that year when we were expecting that Jesus is just about to come back, that Jesus is on the verge of coming back, that was the happiest year of my life. Do you want happiness? Do you want to know that Jesus can fill you with joy? I think that maybe we need to recapture what they experienced. We need to recapture the urgency, the expectancy of knowing that Jesus is coming soon. She continues in Life Sketches and she describes what the experience was like for those who were expecting that Jesus was coming on October 22, 1844. It says, we carefully examined every thought and emotion of our hearts as if upon our deathbeds. Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't you be doing that if you said, okay, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's predicted history accurately for thousands of years. And here we are, and it's telling me 1844 is the year that Jesus is coming back. We're living in 1844. I have got to get my life ready. I have to be ready to meet Jesus in just a few months, just a few weeks, and finally it was down to just days. Can you imagine the urgency in their hearts? Some people began to sell their property and do everything possible to spread the message as far as they could. Others began to just make sure that every single day, the first thing was that they made sure their hearts were right with Jesus. That that relationship was there that when that door closed, that door of salvation, that Jesus wouldn't be saying to them, I don't even know you. But that they knew that they would be ready to meet their Savior. We carefully examined every thought and emotion of our hearts as if upon our deathbeds and in a few hours to close our eyes forever upon earthly scenes. We felt the need of internal evidence that we were prepared to meet Christ and our white robes were purity of soul, character cleansed from sin by the atoning blood of our Savior. Can you see why Jesus allowed them to misunderstand this prophecy. I mean, he gave them more light and kept revealing more to them. But do you see what it did in their hearts? Expecting that Jesus was coming back right away began to give them this complete surrender to Jesus. This absolute consecration saying, nothing else matters anymore. I have to make sure that my heart is right with Jesus. I have to make sure that there's nothing between me and my Savior. 
because nothing else matters. Jesus is coming back. They were expecting Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. They were expecting that there would be this glorious appearing in heaven. They expected that on that night they would see Jesus coming back to raise their dead loved ones who had died preaching the message. And yet, they were disappointed. They were drastically disappointed. As Jesus didn't come back in 1844. So they went back to Scripture and they began to study and they began to say, God, what happened? They looked at history. They looked at the prophecies of Daniel. They said, these clearly reveal that this is the date. So what has taken place? What, how can we understand what God is really trying to do? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 8. They came to a crucial realization that these dates were correct. What was wrong was what they had predicted would take place on that date because of their misunderstanding of the sanctuary. Friends, I would say in today in Christianity, one of the most crucial problems in Christianity as a whole is a misunderstanding of the sanctuary. Not grasping what Jesus has done and will do for us through the sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. They came to the realization, okay, the sanctuary isn't here on earth. It says that we have a high priest, and that high priest is currently in the sanctuary. He's currently ministering on my behalf, on your behalf, in the sanctuary. As they began to study this more, they looked at Leviticus chapter 16 and revisited this whole Day of Atonement. And they realized that on this day, it was the only day of the year when, while every day they had sacrifices for sin, Those sacrifices for sin only resulted in the blood being sprinkled on the altar, the blood being laid on the priest. But that sin was symbolically transferred into the sanctuary. That defilement of God's character by God's people having misrepresented Him was was something that God continued to bear there in the sanctuary. But on the Day of Atonement, that amazing day, The Israelites were told that they were to come to the sanctuary on that day and they were to afflict their souls. They were to humble themselves before God. They were to search their hearts because on this day, something really special was going to happen. On this day, all that sin that had been heaped up was going to be taken away. On this day, they could know that their sins were going to be blotted out. What an amazing day that would be as you as an Israelite came to the, the sanctuary and you're, you're there and you're watching as the high priest goes in and he washes in the laver and he puts on a different garment than he usually wore and as he goes into the sanctuary, this is the one time of the year when he went all the way into that most holy place, the presence of Almighty God. He went in with special incense that came as a cloud because otherwise it said he would be consumed because that presence was so powerful. He went into that room where was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the mercy seat on top and inside were the Ten Commandments. It was this one day a year where the high priest ministered for the people 
to take care of all their sins, to blot it out, to get rid of that record of wrong. And if you look through the Bible, it's very clear that there is a record of wrong taken of our lives. That there's this book, it's often referred to, recorded in heaven. For instance, when the Israelites sinned and Moses goes to intercede for them, I believe it was at the golden calf in Exodus, when Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel, he says to them, blot my name out of your book. God says, no, I can't do that. The one who sins against me is blotted out. It's those who sin, those who have sins recorded next to their names, those are the ones who are blotted out. Now, wait a second. Jesus tells Moses, or God tells Moses that he can't blot his name out. Now, wasn't Moses the one who murdered an Egyptian? Wasn't he the one who, there were a few mistakes in his life, weren't there? Moses had a few sins that should have been recorded there that should have resulted in him being blotted out because he too was a sinner, right? But Moses was covered by the blood of the Lamb. That representation in the sanctuary. Moses believed in the soon coming Savior, Jesus. He believed in the merits of the cross. He believed that he was going to be saved by the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation, it actually reveals that this most holy place is open in a special way in the end of time. Go with me to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Revelation 11 and 19 says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Friends, in the year 1844, Jesus opened a special door for you and I, a special door to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. There was another door that was shut, and that was the door to that ministration in the holy place. On this day, that's what the priest the priest would no longer ministrate in the holy place anymore, but he would do it in the most holy place. Here in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19, it tells us that the temple of God was opened in heaven. And what, is, what does John see in that temple? As the temple is open, he looks specifically and he sees, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there was lightnings, noises, thunders, and earthquake and great hail. You see, in the time of the judgment that's revealed in Scripture, James chapter 2 tells us that we are to be judged by the law of liberty, that law of love that God has revealed as His character. That is what we're judged by in the judgment. But on that day when the high priest went into the most holy place of the sanctuary, the sins against that law were blotted out by the blood of the Lamb. And since we are living in that antitypical day of atonement, your sins today can be blotted out by the blood of the Lamb. That's what our scripture reading said, isn't it? Go back to Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter, he's there talking to, the to those who are gathered because they just healed somebody. Verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted. Repent of your sins. Confess your sins. Repentance, remember, is a gift of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us. Repent therefore and be converted. Be changed by that repentance. Be transformed by that repentance. Turn in a different direction 
is what that's basically saying. Repent, therefore, and be converted that what? Your sins may be blotted out. This is what God is longing to do for you and I in a special way just now. We have a most holy high priest who's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and he's wanting to blot out your sins and my sins for all of eternity. He's wanting to make an end to sin. He's wanting to rectify the character of God to set it right before the whole universe. Daniel chapter 7 was part of what William Miller misunderstood. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about how the Son of Man would come and thrones would be set up and books would be opened. And there would be a myriad of angels around watching this scene. And as William Miller read that, he assumed that it meant Jesus was coming back to earth for the judgment. But later on, he began to realize that the Bible reveals that when Jesus comes back, judgment has already taken place. Revelation chapter 22, it says, I'm coming back and my reward is with me. I'm coming back and I've already made decision. I've already decided your case. I'm coming back with my reward for those who are trusting in Jesus and whose sins have been blotted out. So here in Acts chapter 3, Peter says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you need a refresher in your experience with Jesus? I know I do. I know I want just a refreshing. One lexicon talks about this Greek word and calls it a recovery of happiness. Do you need just a recovery of happiness in Jesus, a recovery of your love for Jesus? Repent and be converted that your sins can be blotted out by your most by the priest in the most holy place, by Jesus. Repent and be converted, and those times of refreshing will come. Repent and be converted, that your sins may be plotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. Again and again, you find it in Daniel chapter 7, right after those books are opened and judgment is given, then it says, Jesus' kingdom is set up. Daniel chapter 2, at the end of this vision, the rock comes and a government is set up on earth. It's after judgment is made in behalf of the saints. In your favor, as Daniel 7.22 says, when that judgment is made, then Jesus is coming back. When your sins are blotted out, Jesus is coming back to to get you. So today, I want to have that urgency. I want to have that expectancy Because although the followers of William Miller misunderstood the event, they got the action of their own hearts right. They got their actions towards Jesus right. Because in that time period, they desperately sought a relationship with Jesus because they knew that it was urgent. If you knew that you were going to die tonight, how urgent would it be that you have a close relationship with Jesus? If you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, how urgent would it be to have a close walk with Jesus? Well, in Revelation, it tells us that there's coming a moment in Revelation chapter 22 where Jesus is finally going to cease his intercessions in the most holy place of the sanctuary. He wants for all of us to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us he's not willing that any should be lost. He's doing everything possible to blot out 
every sin of everyone who's willing to believe in Jesus. But it tells us in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11 that there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to make this pronouncement, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Do you see the urgency in this? That there's going to come a moment when intercession ceases on my behalf. So that means that every single day I want to make sure that my relationship with Jesus is the most loving it's ever been. That it's the most filled with joy that it's ever been. That it's the closest it's been in my life because we live in urgent times. The signs of the times are increasing in in their frequency and their intensity. As we look at the world, we see the earthquakes. We see wars. We see rumors of wars. We see disease. We see all the things going on in the world. And Jesus is again saying to you and I today, I'm coming quickly. And He wants you to expect that because of what it will do in your heart. Because of the urgency about your relationship with Jesus. Not so that you can go home and stockpile as much stuff as possible so that you can make it through the time of trouble, but so that you know Jesus for yourself. So that I have a close, living relationship with Jesus. There's nothing more important than that. Ellen White, who went through that, that disappointing time, said this in the book, Great Controversy, She said, would that there were still with the professed people of God the same spirit of heart searching. The same spirit from that year that she said was the happiest year of her life that Hiram Edson said this was the richest and deepest experience of my Christian journey. Would that there were still with the people of God the same spirit of heart searching, the same earnest determined faith had they continued thus to humble themselves before the Lord and press their petitions at the mercy seat, they would be in possession of a far richer experience than they now have. You have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. He's in the most holy place. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has all power. He has the key of David. And he wants to give you a richer experience. Will we humble our hearts before him today? Will we do like the Israelites were told on the Day of Atonement and afflict our souls and search our hearts? Will we pray the prayer of David, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and then sinners will be converted to you. Will we pray like we've never prayed before? Because today is a day of salvation. We don't know that tomorrow salvation will still be available. We don't know that a week from now salvation will still be available. But right now, Jesus is calling you to totally surrender, to totally allow Him to blot out all your sins and to fill you with His Holy Spirit so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. Friends, Jesus is coming back soon. This picture that we've seen is something that's just imagined by an artist, but it won't be long until Jesus is coming back in the clouds. Will you and I have allowed Him to blot out all of our sins? 
Don't leave a sin unconfessed. Don't hang on to anything. It's not worth it. Just like those who were on the verge of 1844 who sold everything, who got rid of everything, who said, I'm ready to do whatever it takes. Hold nothing back from making sure that your relationship is right with Jesus today. As I close in prayer, I just want to invite you again in the silence of your own heart Because it's a personal relationship. It has to be you and Jesus. It has to be you totally surrendering to Jesus and asking for the gift of salvation. As I pray, I just want to give you that opportunity to say, Jesus, would you blot out my sins? Would you blot out all that record with your precious blood that can make my robe as white as snow? Let's pray together. Father, We're inviting you to clean house. We're inviting you to clear out the corners of our hearts, the things which we've been holding back from you. We're inviting you to reveal to us the sin that we don't even recognize that's creeping in and causing us to be separated from Jesus. Because we want that refreshing. We want a recovery of joy. We want to be restored to that loving, happy relationship. We want to experience Jesus in a richer way than ever before. So Father, in the secret of our own hearts, we just want to confess our sins and allow you to blot them out with your infinitely powerful blood. Thank you, Jesus, that you are coming quickly. Thank you that you are faithful to your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are the creator of the universe and we invite you to create in us a clean heart today. Please pour out your Holy Spirit on us now. Send those times of refreshing. We long for Jesus to come back. We long for the restoration of all things. And so we're asking that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.